Revelation chapter number 6. For those of you that have been here for the introductory lessons to this great book, I mentioned some things in the very beginning that will help you to to understand this book, and that is the fact that it's divided up into three areas before the tribulation. That's the first five chapters. And then during the tribulation, that's chapters number 6 through chapter 19, and then chapter 20, 21, and 22 deals with a time period after the tribulation. So it helps you to understand where you're at as you're studying this book. And tonight as we look at this section that deals with that period during the tribulation, I want to mention this, that I firmly believe that we have four separate accounts of the tribulation period. The Bible gives us four separate records, we call them the Gospels, of the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here in the book of Revelation, we have four separate accounts of the next coming of Christ. By His coming, I'm talking about literally coming to this this earth. And so during this tribulation period, as we look at each one of these sections, what you will notice is that each one of these ends, concludes, with the coming of the Lord. Now, the the only exception in all of this is chapter 7 that we'll get to next week, and I'll explain then. It is actually parenthetical. In other words, it's not a continuation of the thought uh, that he's that he's on, but it's parenthetical by way of explaining something, and I'll talk more about that then. But it'll help you to remember if you if you think about this that there are four separate accounts of the tribulation tonight. Here in chapter number six, we see in this chapter. Remember in chapter number five, the seven seal scroll that was introduced. John saw this strong angel there in heaven, and he was proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to take and open uh, this book, which was a seven-seal scroll? And now we come to chapter number 6, and we see that that scroll being opened. Here in chapter 6, we see a panoramic view of the tribulation period, and it's introduced with the sound of thunder. Now, that is announcing what is to come. And whenever we think of thunder, while well, we think of, we think of storm, right? And here we see impending doom that's coming upon the earth. We'll talk more about it at a different time, but just so, just so that you might understand tonight, when we think of the tribulation, please understand that the coming of the Lord is in two different parts. There's the rapture, which is just before the tribulation, and the revelation, which is at the end of the tribulation. All of the Christian people, all of God's people at the rapture, which could happen at any time according to the Bible, 
just before the tribulation, all of God's people are going to be called up together in the air to meet the Lord. So we're going to go be with the Lord. He's going to come in the clouds of the air, but it never speaks about Him coming to this earth and touching this earth at that time. He comes in the clouds of the air. We're called up to be with Him. Seven years of tribulation begin upon the earth. At the end of that time, we come back with Him to this earth in glorified bodies to rule and reign right here during what is called the millennial reign, thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so with all of that in mind, let's look at this panoramic view of the tribulation period. Verse number 1, he says, And when I saw the Lamb open one of the seals, and I heard, as it were, the noise of thunder... One of the four beasts saying, Come and see. And I saw, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering and to conquer. So this is the first seal. You know, if I was to give a title to this chapter, I I guess it might be the four horsemen. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, as some have called it. Or you might just call it the coming chaos to this earth. And here, the first horse rider, he pictures as being on a white horse. Now, one thing that we need to clear up before we go on is to think about the identity of this rider and, and, and not get confused because in chapter number 19... We find the Lord being pictured as a rider on a white horse. And if you're not careful, you will assume that this is what it's talking about, that it's talking about Christ. But there's a big difference in those two accounts. For example, here in chapter number 6, we see that this rider is not named. There is no identity given. But in chapter number 19, he's called the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That could refer to only one person. Amen. In chapter number 6, he is associated with earth. In chapter number 19, he comes from heaven. In chapter number 6, it says he has a crown. In chapter number 19, the rider of the white horse there wears many crowns. Here in chapter number 6, we find the rider carries a bow. In chapter number 19, that rider carries a sharp sword the Lord Jesus Christ. So there is a difference. A white horse. All through the Bible, horses are associated with warfare. White is symbolic of righteousness. Now, you know, usually whenever we think about righteousness, we automatically think about the Lord and we think about perfection. And automatically some might assume, well, this is speaking about the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's, it's, it's not speaking of Him at all, as you'll see. Remember, the world standard of righteousness is far different than ours. Whenever we, whenever we talk about religion, for example, uh, the, the idea of most people is that it's all of the same. Uh, Wednesday night, whenever I was speaking about the matter of prayer and talking about uh, certain hindrances and so forth, and I talked about, I used the word pluralism. 
And that's a word that everybody needs to be familiar with because pluralism simply is the idea that most Americans have that one religion is just as good as another religion. Right? I mean, it doesn't make any difference as long as you're sincere in what you believe. You know, you can be this denomination, that denomination, no denomination. And, uh, and so everybody is all right uh, in, in, in that view. Now, Satan is smart enough to use man's religious nature to his advantage. And this, this becomes very clear later on in the book of Revelation. And we think about the false prophet and the, and, and, and the Antichrist. And here, I believe, is a picture of the Antichrist as he comes on the scene. And this, this particular word that he uses here, righteousness, means without prejudice or, or without partiality. In other words, he's speaking about equality. And so the Antichrist comes on the scene... Now remember, his purpose is to deceive the world, and he does that. The Bible declares he deceives the whole world except the elect. Now, whenever he comes on the scene, he does so seemingly for a good purpose, and that's to bring everybody together. There'll be equality. And he'll have a peace plan. You know, he will initiate a plan that's going to cause everybody to dwell together in peace. He'll bring about some kind of utopia here on the earth. I mean, that's the idea behind it. And so this is a picture of peace with the white horse rider coming on the scene. But the story doesn't end there, of course. And notice he has a bow. That's symbolic of warfare. What is a bow? It's a missile launcher, right? It's a missile launcher. Now, understand that whenever the Bible speaks in, in, in symbols, for example, it's, it's speaking in the context of people that lived in that day. I, I mean, you know, had John written down there, you know, had he named some of the weapons that we have available today, the people wouldn't have any idea whatsoever what he was talking about. So he used language that people in that day could identify with, And whenever we think about a bow, it's an instrument of war. It is a missile launcher. So the Antichrist comes on the scene, supposedly with a peaceful intent, but he has a bow in his hand. We could say he has his finger on the button. He could initiate nuclear warfare or whatever at a moment's notice. And it says, "...and a crown was given unto him." That word crown is interesting because there's two different words used for crown in the Bible. One of them that is used in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ speaks about a diadem. Uh, That speaks of authority. That's the crown that the Lord wears. This is Stephanos, I believe is the way you pronounce it. And, And this particular Greek word has to do with what is awarded, what is given to someone uh, by way of rewarding them. In other words, it has something to do with their achievement. Now, you and I both know that a lot of times here on earth, people are given awards that do not deserve them whatsoever. You know, somebody uh, here, you know, I won the Nobel Peace Prize. What difference does that make? I mean, we've had some really bad men down through the years win the Nobel Peace Prize. That, that means nothing. But here, here comes someone on the scene winning the confidence of the world, supposedly with a peace, a peace initiative, but he has the ability to launch missiles, as it were, initiate warfare, 
and a crown was given to him. In other words, they, they award him. That is, they honor him. Whenever the Antichrist comes, please understand that he's not going to be a man of usual ability. He's going to be a man that is very impressive. In fact, I think I'll take the time. Let me just give you a list of, of some things that are characteristic of the Antichrist. And, and we, we naturally can't dwell on these if I was teaching my College class back years ago, we took time, read all of these verses, went through all of these things, examined each and every one, but we certainly don't have time for that. Let me just rapid fire mention 21 characteristics of the Antichrist. I know you'll not get them all down, but, but at least you'll get the information. Number one, he will not be revealed until the day of the Lord begins. Now, later on, I'll give you a list of these things and give you the Scripture that goes with them, but for time's sake, we just can't do that tonight. So, He will not be revealed until the day of the Lord begins. Now, I, that, that's important because a lot of folks, you know, come on the scene and they say, well, Hitler was the Antichrist, or Mussolini was the Antichrist, or the Pope is the Antichrist, or whoever it might be. And down through the years, over and over again, I can remember a time whenever they said Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. And boy, some of the preachers had long lists of things. Here, here's all of the reasons why I know he's the Antichrist. Well, he's not going to be revealed until, until the Lord comes. So you might as well quit worrying about it. You don't know. I don't know. And if a preacher tells you he knows, he's a liar and ought to quit preaching. Nobody knows. He will not be revealed until that time. Secondly, he comes from a Gentile nation. We'll see that later on in chapter number 13, where he comes up out of the sea representing the Gentile nations. His rise comes through a peace program. He is characterized by great intelligence. He will be a great orator, according to Daniel chapter number 7. He will cause craft to prosper, according to Daniel chapter 8. He will rule over the ten-nation federation of the revived Roman Empire. Three of the original ten rulers will be eliminated in his rise to power. I'm talking about that federation of nations, of those ten nations. And then as he rises to power, three of them are going to be eliminated. His influence will be worldwide, Revelation 13, 8. He will establish a covenant with the Jews. Now, remember, we just talked about the white horse rider coming with a peace program. In other words, he's going to assure equality for everybody. You know, you're going to, you're going to like this. It's going to be good for you, so on and so forth. And he sells the world on the idea that if you'll give me control, I can make this happen. And so he enters into this covenant with the Jews, a seven-year covenant, but then Daniel 9.27 tells us he breaks that covenant. Then Daniel 11.36 tells us he sets himself up as God. Now they've put him in this position of power here upon the earth, and all of a sudden there is an announcement. It's on all of the major news networks. It's in the newspaper and everywhere that... You know, so-and-so reveals his true identity. He's God. Now, you can sit there and think people will never believe that. But the Bible says that God will send them a strong delusion and they will believe the lie of the Antichrist. 
And then it tells us he will blaspheme the true God. It tells us he'll be energized by Satan. It tells us he'll be a miracle worker, by the way. It tells us he'll be accepted by those who have heard and rejected the gospel. He will control Palestine and set up his headquarters in Jerusalem. He'll be supported by a corrupt religious system. Remember, I just referred to the false prophet, and we'll see that in Revelation 17. He'll be promoted by this false prophet, but then he turns against this religious system. And then finally, number 21, he will finally long last be conquered by the Lord. Now, aren't you glad that with all of this, all of this looming over us, that you know how it's going to end? You, you don't know all of the, you don't know all of the things that might happen between now and then, but we've read the last chapter of the book and we know how it's going to end. Now, let's look at the second seal. Verse number three, he says, and when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast saying, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. Now, this, this, this is a picture of war. Starts out with peace, but now it's war. Red, of course, is symbolic of Satan, symbolic of bloodshed, symbolic of war. Now, we don't know the exact time, but what we do know is that Palestine is going to be invaded. If you've never read Ezekiel chapter 38 and chapter 39, you need to spend some time there. Especially, it's especially interesting in those first nine verses of chapter number 38, because he identifies some nations there. He speaks about Gog and Magog and, and the chief prince. And this word Gog and the phrase the chief prince here, the Caucasus Mountains that, that, that are in Russia, they form the, the, the northern, which, north of Palestine. Fort of Gog means Gog's last stand. And this, this phrase that, that Ezekiel used, chief prince there, is also a word that speaks, means chief. Uh, the Hebrew word is Rosh, R-O-S-H. That's the word for Russia. And I'm not making this stuff up. I'm telling you the literal meaning of the Hebrew word that's found there in that chapter where Russia is identified. And we know there's going to be an invasion that is described there. And maybe somebody's wondering, well, why in the world would Russia want to get involved and, you know, invade the land of Palestine? Well, because of the riches. I, I could spend the next 30 minutes using some old data about the wealth of the Dead Sea and the great oil reserves and all of that, you know, that's located there in, in Palestine. It is absolutely mind-boggling and amazing, all of the wealth that is there. I mean, it's the nugget of the earth, so so to speak, and Russia knows that, and, and, and so consequently they're going to invade the land in that day. It tells us in chapter number 39 that they will, after the initial entrance and the, the conflict, they go in, it says, to take a prey, five-sixths of their army is going to be destroyed, because whenever they go in, remember, the Antichrist, the head of the ten nations, will rise up against Russia and Russia's allies. Five-sixths of the army will be killed, 
And it'll take seven years to clean up the after effects of the war. Now, that's interesting because seven years is the length of the tribulation period. So that tells me this invasion of Palestine is going to happen somewhere right at the very beginning. You know, that might be the thing that cements the deal. Now, think about that, where the Antichrist enters into a covenant with the Jews that he's going to break in the middle of the tribulation after three and a half years. But, I mean, they put all of their confidence in him entering into this covenant. And, and in other words, he becomes their protector. And, and if this happens at the beginning of the tribulation, he's giving evidence of, we're not going to let Russia bully you. We're not going to let Russia destroy you. We're going to take care of you. So all of their confidence is in this man. And this is the man with the finger on the button, remember. This is the man that brings war to the earth. Now, The third seal, look in verse number 5. It says, And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come see, and I beheld in lo a black horse. And he that sat on him had a pair of balances. For you kids, that would be like your bathroom scales or whatever. It's a pair of scales. And he says, And I I heard uh, a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, a measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny. And see thou hurt not the oil and wine. Now, there is a change of scenery. This time we see a black horse rider. That's the color of famine. There is a famine in the land. It's described in Jeremiah chapter number 14. It is exactly what Jesus predicted in Matthew chapter number 24. So this is not new information. Jesus said it was going to be this way and it is the result of an unstable economy and famine. In other words, there are going to be shortages and, and, and no, no, no doubt the war itself that's, that will be raging in certain parts. All of that play into it. And the rider carries a pair of balances or a scales, and it's, it's, it's a picture of food being rationed. And, and notice what he says. He says, a, uh, a measure of wheat for a penny and three measures of barley for a penny. The penny represented the wages uh, of, a, of, of a day labor. In other words, you work all day in a penny, and the three measures for a penny, that represents, you know, uh, uh, the, the, what you could buy for what, what you've got at the time, and it represents a starvation diet. In, in other words, if you want to if you want to just survive, you know, there's enough for uh, all of the family, just a starvation-type diet, or, or you can feed yourself for, for one. And then he says, hurt not the oil and the wine. Now, that's interesting, because here you've got everybody else living on a starvation diet, and the government rationing food out, and, and he says, don't hurt the oil and the wine, though. Well, who's going to benefit from that? You know, that's the way socialism works, by the way. The government just takes and takes and takes and takes. And, you know, as they take, they distribute, you know. And, and, and by the way, what they distribute is not, it may be equal amounts among the people out there. But somebody's skimming it off of the top and getting rich. It always ends up that way, folks. It really does. And, and, and I think that's what we see here. Hurt not the oil and wine. We've got to take care of that. We've got to take care of the luxuries. The rest of you can starve to death. You can stand in, 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 the, uh, in the line and, you know, having your food rationed out to you. 
And then notice what happens next in verse number 7. The fourth seal is open, and he opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat on him. Now, we don't have to wonder about this, because here it is. His name was Death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast, uh, with the beast of the earth. Now, it doesn't take any imagination to see that this pale horse rider represents death. Now go through the progression again. You have the Antichrist and his government coming on the scene with a peace initiative. Everybody's going to prosper. This is going to be good for everybody. There's going to be equality the world over. All you got to do is just give me the authority to be in charge and to run the whole show. And so they do that. But then we see after that comes the red horse rider because war breaks out. The black horse rider, now times are difficult. Remember, in the middle of the tribulation, beginning at three and a half years, Jesus described from three and a half year point on to the end as the great tribulation. In other words, it's going to be a whole lot worse than, than the first part. In fact, Jesus said it will be worse than any other time in the history of this world. The world has never, ever seen how bad it's going to be now. Let that sink in a little bit and keep in mind that here we are seeing these people under the iron heel of what is now a dictator, the Antichrist. Their food is being rationed. And by the way, there have been times whenever people resorted to cannibalism. They ate the flesh of their own children to survive. And I'm telling you, we cannot even begin to imagine how bad it's going to be during the tribulation. Somebody says, yeah, but I just don't think people would ever do that. Well, what you forget is the Bible tells us that in these last days, perilous times would come and people will be without natural affection. In other words, there's no love for family. Boy, we're seeing that everywhere we turn today. No real great love, even for their own family. And boy, when it gets down to the nitty-gritty where the rubber meets the road and people are literally starving to death, there are a lot of people out there that are just bad enough that they literally would not hesitate to eat the flesh of their own children to survive. This is what's coming upon the earth, whether you believe it or not. And, And notice, whenever... The pale horse rider comes on the scene and he speaks about death. And notice the different means of death. He speaks about the sword. That might have to do with those that are martyred. He speaks about hunger. That would have to do with those that starve to death. Then he speaks about death itself, which means pestilence or disease. And that's the reason they die. And then the beast. In other words, he indicates that the very fury of the beast will be intensified in that day. I've often said, and we're going to see later on, that during the tribulation, there there are some beasts that are described, some animals, whatever you want to call them, that, that's just beyond description. And so, and I'm not into sci-fi. I, I, I'm, I'm not a, a sci-fi fan. I, I, I just can't stand it. I just, it, I, I, I just don't like it. But 
Sometimes we wonder, where did these writers get all of these weird ideas, you know, about these zombies and these beasts and all of, all of these creatures that, you know, they create in their own mind? Let me just be honest with you and tell you, and I'm not saying that they have any prophetic abilities, that's not what I mean, but I'm telling you there is coming a time during the tribulation, there are going to be things happen upon this earth the likes of which we could never even begin to imagine that are going to these, these beasts loose, the Bible speaks about from the very bowels of the earth, as it were. Now, verse number 9, the fifth seal is opened. And he says, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that, they, that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. This is amazing. There's a shift of scenery from the earth to heaven. And obviously those pictured here are the saints that will be slaughtered during the tribulation. Now, if you've been paying close attention, I realize you might have a question. Because I said earlier that during the rapture, all of God's people are going to be taken out of this world. And that's true. The saved are going to be taken out of this world. But during the tribulation period, there are going to be a great many people that will be saved. The Bible speaks about the fact there will be 144,000 of the Jews that finally will get their heads screwed on straight and realize that they have been wrong all of these years about Jesus being the Messiah. And these 144,000 Jews are going to be converted during the tribulation period. And they will begin to evangelize. And we'll see next week in Revelation chapter number 7 as a result of their effort. There will be people saved out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, nation on the face of the earth. Think about that. Boy, this will be the greatest evangelistic program that has ever taken place. And it's happening during the tribulation period. What happens? You'll see later on, remember, the food's being rationed. And later on, we see those that did not have the mark of the beast will not be able to buy nor sell. These believers will refuse the mark of the beast. They refuse to be identified with the Antichrist. And the result of that is they're killed. They're martyred, put to death. And here we're seeing a picture of them. John says, I, I, I saw them. The seal was open and I, I saw them. It's the, they're in heaven and they're saying, how long, Lord? How long will you wait before you avenge the blood that was shed? And the Lord answered, well, just until your brethren, you see, they're going to be saints still here on earth, until they also are killed. Now we come to the sixth seal. Verse number 12, And I beheld, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. Let me just stop there. 
Because here we're going to see a, a, a list of cataclysmic events that's going to take place. You could go back to Luke chapter number 21 and you could read about all of these, by the way. And, and here we see them listed one by one. He talks about earthquakes. Jesus predicted that in Matthew chapter 24 and verse number 7. Uh, experts tell us that the present earthquakes are happening at one million a year. Now, we don't feel all of those, you know, understand, but it's happening. The experts also tell us that between 30 A.D. and 1959, the year I graduated from high school, there had been only... 24 major earthquakes in history. Since that time, the number skyrocketed. In, in the 1994 World Almanac, I don't have the up-to-date, up-to-date uh, facts and figures on these, but th- this is out of a message I preached in 1994, by the way. And I counted myself 77 major earthquakes since 1960. Now think about that. In all of those, all of those years, 30 AD to 1959, 24 major earthquakes. And then beginning in 19, beginning in 1960 to 1994, there had been 77. Now, now, I'm simply trying to get you to see that just exactly what the Bible prophesied has happened and is happening and the sad thing is, some people still won't believe. Whenever all of the evidence is there, they still refuse to believe that the Bible is true. And then notice he said, the sun became black. It says the stars of heaven fell. It says heaven departed. We'll talk about the three heavens at a later date. But here he says, heaven departed and every mountain and island moved. Now, I want you to notice the classes of people that are affected as a result of this. He says, verse number 15, And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. That's just another way of saying everybody is going to be affected. You can be a king on the throne, or you can be the richest man in all of the world, but when God's judgment comes upon this earth, your authority and your riches are not going to buy you any special favors with God. He's going to get them all. And notice, he says in verse 16, and he said to the mountains, or they say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Here we see not only the classes affected, but the concealment that they sought. It's amazing. Instead of them praying for mercy, oh dear God, we've been wrong all of these years. We have wrongly accused you. We have doubted you. We have not trusted you. And we repent in sackcloth and ashes. And I mean, look, you would think a horrible judgment like this would finally shake people to the point that it would bring them to their senses. But it doesn't. They hide in the rocks and the caves and 
what in the world are they doing there? Well, I, there's a lot of preppers <laughs> that are there, by the way. I mean, already digging out bunkers and hiding supplies of food and everything, trying to avert any, you know, any judgment or calamity upon them and their families and people realize something bad is going to happen. But the sad thing is when it does, these people are still not going to turn to the Lord. That tells me that regardless of what happens, there are some people that will never turn to Christ. Sometimes we preachers feel guilty, you know, because maybe, let's face it, every sermon's not the preacher's best sermon. There are some days you don't feel good, some days you're not thinking straight. It's just sometimes, you know, things don't come out right and you go home and you beat yourself up and you think, you know, if I'd have been more zealous or if I'd used more, uh, more or better illustrations or maybe I ought to have thrown in a joke here and there or whatever and we beat ourselves up because nothing happened. Let me tell you something. It's not my job to make things happen. It's my job to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, to teach the Word of God. That's my job. It's God's job to make things happen. And by the way, it says of Jesus that He could do no mighty works even in His hometown. And there are some people, I don't care how hard you try, there are some people that you'll never be able to reach. And their number is growing all of the time. And here at the end of the tribulation, with all of this evidence before them, what do they do? They hide in the caves and the rocks and the dens and cry out for death to come. For the great day of His wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Isn't that a great question? Who shall be able to stand in the great day of the wrath of God? Whenever God's judgment comes upon us, who shall be able to stand? I'm telling you here and now, only those that are covered in the precious blood of the Son of God. Only those that by faith have received Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior will be able to stand. These people realize there's some things worse than death. These people would rather die than to face the Lord. But here's what they don't know. That's not going to get them out of it. Just because, just because their body is covered over with ten ton of rocks doesn't mean they won't have to stand before God. There is no escape from the from the great white throne judgment for the unsaved. Every unsaved person one day will stand before Him for their final condemnation. Who shall be able to stand? If you don't know Christ as your Savior tonight, let me tell you, you don't stand a chance. And every day you linger... And every time that you continue to reject the gospel message, you know what happens? Your heart becomes harder and harder. It's like a callus building up on your heart. And it becomes more and more difficult to reach you. Some of you may be, may be here tonight and you can think of a time where when you would come to church and 
The Word of God was preached and you'd have a, a tear in your eye when the preacher talked about Calvary. And the Holy Spirit tugged at your heartstrings and you knew that you ought to trust Christ as your Savior and you didn't do it. And each and every time that you rejected Him, it become easier and easier. Now you can sit through a service where they sing the old rugged cross, but it doesn't move you. The preacher can preach about Calvary, but it doesn't move you. Let me tell you right now, if anybody is in that condition, you need to be scared to death because you are in a dangerous, dangerous place right now. And if you're here and not saved, I urge you to be saved. Look, folks, when we realize what's coming upon this earth and we realize what our responsibility is as as God's people to serve Him and to reach those that are lost, when we study prophecy, it's not to satisfy our curiosity. It's not just, you know, so we'll be able to go out here and go to work tomorrow, school tomorrow, and argue with people, you know, about eschatology. You know, that, that's not the purpose. And the purpose is for, is for a very practical reason, and that it might ignite a passion within us to reach our unsaved loved ones before it's too late. Because if Christ comes tomorrow, remember... The Bible said two will be in the field, one will be taken, one left. Two in the bed, one taken, one left. There's coming a day of great separation, and God's people will be taken, and your loved ones are going to be left to face a literal hell on this earth in that day. God forbid that we just sit back and do nothing and pretend that it's never going to happen. Let us take advantage of the opportunity while we still can. Let's stand together. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful that you've given us information in your word that we would never receive otherwise. Things that we would never know otherwise. And we're so thankful that you've revealed these things to us. And Lord, while on one hand it encourages our heart and it thrills our soul to think about the fact that we are a joint heir with Jesus Christ, and as a result of that, we know that the best is yet to come. But Lord, at the same time, we realize that for our dear friends, for our loved ones, our family members, those that know not Christ, this will be the most horrible thing in all of the world. Help us tonight to commit ourselves to the mission that you set forth in your word, that we'll do everything within our power to reach them with the gospel of Jesus Christ before it's too late. For we pray in his dear name.